Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. If you were to ask a meteorologist who their top three superheroes are, odds are X-Men Storm would be on that list. That may be because of Halle Berry's portrayal of her in the movies, but mainly because she has the ability to harness the power of the weather and use it at her will. What would you do if you could control the weather? Would you make it rain on the house of your high school bully every day or keep the sun (laughs) shining bright while you're on a vacation on the beach? My guest today is legendary Glenn Hurricane Schwartz of NBC10 in Philadelphia, who wrote a book about this fictional power and the consequences that can arise from it. Glenn, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot for inviting me. Well, this is an honor for me because uh, as someone that's been around the meteorological field for some time, I know that Glenn Hurricane Schwartz is a legend in the Philadelphia area, and we'll get all into why I say that. (laughs) But before I do that, let me just give you a bit of background on Glenn before we set the stage. And Glenn, I'm going to give you a heads up because I always ask every single Weather Geeks guest what got you interested in weather. So while I'm giving you oh, yeah. a background here, be thinking about that answer. I'm sure you got it locked and loaded. Yeah, don't have to. Do that. Yeah, I know. We all have that story. But Glenn's meteorologist at NBC10 in Philadelphia for 25 years, nearly 25 years. He was the chief meteorologist from 2012 to 2017. He's known for his bow ties that all, he always wears during his broadcast. Uh, he's the only meteorologist on the team and in the region that blogs about the weather. He was the first hurricane specialist and storm chasers at the Weather Channel back in 1985. I didn't realize that myself. <laughs> and he's the author of The Weathermaker and co-author of the award-winning Philadelphia Area Weather Book. He was inducted into the Philadelphia Broadcast Pioneers Hall of Fame in 2010, has a bachelor's degree in Penn, from Penn State University, one of the excellent meteorology departments out there. And he was born and raised in Philadelphia. So, wow, you're, you're, you're kind of like me. You sort of live and work in your home, home city. So how'd you get interested in weather? Well, it's actually the reason I got interested or got the idea for this book. When I was a kid, I loved to play baseball. And let's say around 10 years old or so. And we got into a series of rainouts. It, it rained out like four or five games in a row. And it was just so frustrating. And so right then I decided that when I grew up, I was going to build a machine where I can actually turn off the rain so I could play ball. And at the same time, I was studying the weather in school in the fifth grade. And I had a teacher and made it very interesting. I would go home and I would look at the clouds. And that combination got me started. And from that time on, that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Wow. So 
based on that answer, this book didn't come poof out of nowhere. This is something that's kind of been in the back of your mind for a while. We're going to get all into the book. But the next obvious question that I I have to ask, and I'm sure some of our Weather Geeks listeners may be curious about this. I'm sure some in your viewing area know, where'd the nickname Hurricane come from? Well, it came from what you were talking about, where I was the first storm chaser for the Weather Channel back in uh, 1985. That Weather Channel was fairly young at the time, and they had never actually gone outside the door and filmed the weather. And I was working on a documentary on hurricanes for the Weather Channel and the National Science Foundation. That's what got me there at the time. And I needed some video because in those days, there wasn't much. And so there was a hurricane that was approaching Pensacola. And I said, well, let me go down there with our photographer, who all he does is shoot promos, commercials. We'll shoot the hurricane. I'll get blown around a little bit and we'll have some video for the documentary. Well, that was not something that they wanted to do, but it it was Labor Day weekend coming up. So the big bosses were away. And so I got one of the vice presidents to get me approval. And I went down there and one week and 3000 miles later, I got to come home because it was Hurricane Elena in 85 and it stalled a couple of times in the Gulf. And I had to send reports back. And of course, me getting blown around in the storm. And then my job after that, after the Weather Channel, I went to New York City and I was showing some of that video just before weather one day, maybe it was the anniversary of Elena or something like that. And then the Anchorman just introduced me as Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. There was no discussion about it, <laughs> no focus group or anything. It's just a nickname and it stuck immediately. It, it, yeah, it stuck immediately because I, I know some people might say, wait, wait a minute, Dr. Shepard, in Philadelphia, not necessarily <laughs> a place known for hurricanes, but that's a really interesting bit of history about your your time at the Weather Channel. I mean, let me stay right there for a second because I like these conversations to go where they go. Um, I'm, I'm sure you sort of monitor sort of storm chasing, hurricane chasing, tornado chasing. Uh, is it from your lens? Is it much different then <laughs> than what what they're up to now? Oh my God! It's like a a whole new planet that we're, that we're on and I get to see. Look, back then, we didn't have satellite trucks. We didn't even have a, a vehicle of our own at the Weather Channel. We had to rent a station wagon. And so when we would shoot some video, let's say in Tampa, Tampa was getting flooded, even though the hurricane was 200 miles away. So I couldn't put a tape on a plane at Tampa. We had to drive to Orlando, put a tape on the plane, drive back to Tampa, shoot some more, drive back to Orlando, put another tape to the to the plane to get back to Atlanta. It was unbelievably primitive. Wow. Back then. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is crazy. Even before we came on 
to tape the podcast, Glenn, uh, I was in my basement of my home with a live view unit doing a, a, a real-time hit on the AMHQ morning show on the Weather Channel. So just there, that little live view unit can give me a live shot here from my home as, as easily as anything. And uh, just imagine even something like what I have here in the house back in 1985 would have made life easier. That's, that's really fascinating. I want to pivot the discussion now to your home base. You know Philadelphia weather. What is actually the most memorable or favorable weather for you in Philadelphia? And what is your least favorite type of weather in terms of uh, forecasting or even just living in the area? Well, obviously, the biggest challenges are hurricanes and winter storms. We're, we're in an area that is one of the trickiest, I think, in the country to deal with uh, forecasting for winter storms because Boston is farther north. So they have a greater percentage of, of snow. Washington, farther south, they have a much lesser percentage of snow. New York and Philly, we're on the borderline, I think more than any other city along the East Coast. And my area ranges from the ocean, right at the Jersey Shore, to the mountains up in the Poconos. So I have to make a forecast for a very large area, tremendous differences across the area. Just to give you an example, there was one snowstorm in 1958 where we ended up with two inches of snow in Atlantic City and 55 zero inches wow. in the western edge of our area. Wow. Um, and that's not in the mountains. That was right along the Pennsylvania Turnpike, which was shut down. They had to evacuate people by helicopter afterward. And yet half of our area would say, that was not a storm. So can you imagine trying to predict something like that? Tomorrow, we're going to have two to 50 inches of snow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, I've, I've always admired those of you. You know, I'm a meteorologist and have been one for over 20 five years, I guess now, but I've never really in my, my roles been a forecaster. I started my career at NASA and Goddard Space Flight mm -hmm. Center working on big weather and climate missions and then came on to the University of Georgia, uh, where we're, where I direct the atmospheric sciences program and continue to do research as well. So stories like that and talking to colleagues in the broadcast field and at the weather service just blow my mind. By the way, we're talking with Glenn Hurricane Schwartz what if you control the weather? Glenn has a new book out called The Weathermaker that we'll be talking about shortly. But I'm I'm picking the brain of one of the legendary meteorologists that this nation has seen. And it's been an honor. Have you noticed any in the weather or the climate? And there's talk about climate change, of course, and we know that climate change is happening and there's a human contribution to it. What have you seen there in your forecast area? Well, I am now celebrating my 40th year in television, 47 years as a meteorologist. I started off as a forecaster for AccuWeather right out of college. The changes that have happened, not just in the last 47 years, but in the last 10 to 20 years, have been so noticeable that a lot of my colleagues who were considered strong skeptics about the connection between the warming of the planet and the weather itself really have been won over just by nature. 
I have, I never predicted, but we never had 20 plus inch snowstorms in Philadelphia. But, but Glenn, Glenn, talk about that, though, because that may be counterintuitive, because I often find people, yeah. it's counterintuitive to people that, you know, when, of course, when we get a snowstorm or it gets cold, people say, hey, what happened to global warming? I thought you guys were yeah. global warming. And, you know, there's actually research on blizzards and snowstorms maybe being, you know, more intense in a climate change environment. Talk about why that is, because I think it's counterintuitive to some. Yeah, well, the first, all you have to do is look at the statistics. So three out of our four biggest snowstorms ever were since 2010. Um, and it's just a matter of, like I said, we're on the borderline very often. So we probably have fewer instances of snow, but when it is cold enough to snow, there's so much more moisture in the air that we can see it pile up more. And yeah. that has happened and it's obvious. And it's not just in Philadelphia. We've seen records of this all over the country, all over the world with record setting snowfall. We've had, of course, record setting rainfall in Philadelphia too in the last 10 years. The, the wettest hour, the wettest day, the wettest month, the wettest season, the wettest year. All of that is just very obvious. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with legendary meteorologist Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. And you just heard Glenn talk about things, changes he's seen in his local market there in the Philadelphia area. Uh, I, I want to give the Weather Geeks listeners a little homework. Yeah, I'm a professor at heart. Keep that <laughs> in mind. So I want to give you a little homework. What, what, doc, I mean, what Glenn Schwartz was just talking about, I want you to do a little homework on something called the Clausius Clapperon relationship. <laughs> Because what he was just talking about very much embodies that Clausius Clapeyron relationship, and maybe we'll revisit it on a future episode. So come with your homework ready, I'm putting on my professor hat for a second. I want to now pivot the discussion a bit. Glenn, what are some of the notable changes? And by the way, we're going to talk all about the weather maker, Glenn's new book. It's fascinating. I, I was able to sign off on it uh, when he sent me a sort of preview of it as well. So uh, we're going to dive all into that. <laughs> but I want to get your thoughts on how the broadcast television industry, particularly from the weather perspective, has changed in the last 25 years. Well, you're talking related to climate or just the... no, no, no. How how the whole broadcast meteorology oh has changed? I mean, you're you're doing more social media. Are you forecasting yeah. less? I mean, I'm you know some of my younger graduates that have gone into the TV meteorology world have gotten out because it's changed so much from what they thought <laughs> it was. So for for someone that's been around for a while, I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, well, uh, for one thing, you, you just have to realize how much better the technology has become. And not just the technology and presenting the weather, showing the weather maps. When I started in TV, we had these magnetic symbols 
like I would put on a magnetic H and a magnetic L on our map and uh, the blue line that was the front and the wind arrows that were cut out and magnetized. So you go from that to these sophisticated computers and of course it's a revolution. And the chroma key, I started with that it was probably around 1980 or so. So the chroma key has been around a long, long time. But of course, other parts of the technology have, again, revolutionized the presentation. But also the forecast. Back in the days when I started, we didn't even attempt to do a weather forecast beyond three days. That was like flipping a coin after that. And as a responsible meteorologist, I don't want to go beyond what the science allowed me to do. But today, I do a 10-day forecast. And I actually verify it to try to prove, at least to myself, that I can go out to day 10 and still have skill, that still do better than using climatology or flipping a coin. And that is an unbelievable change. I wouldn't have thought back in 1975 or something that I could go up in front of hundreds of thousands of people and say, we're going to get a big snowstorm one week from now. Yeah. And I think even, we'd never even think about it. Absolutely. And even your area dealt with Sandy. And I, I mean, some of the models had hints of a left turn into into the uh, Northeast, they're nine days out. So it really, I was looking at something on Twitter the other day, someone tweeted how much the cone of uncertainty has narrowed <laughs> in the last three decades. It's just amazing. So for those that say, oh, the weather forecast is wrong or there's, mo there's been no advances in weather forecasting skill, listen to what Glenn Schwartz is saying right now. I mean, about, you know, 10 day forecast, you know, 10 yeah, 14 days is about the limit from the yeah. physical standpoint, we think, um, but certainly uh, we've made quite a bit of strides in that range. Well, let me explain why I think that people are more sensitive, more upset in today's world than they were back in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Back in those days, I would say that people didn't trust our forecasts enough to change their plans or to make plans based on it. And so if the forecast didn't work out, it was no big deal. Now forecasts have gotten so good that we've convinced people that we're good at it and we are better than any kind of profession trying to predict the future. Just think of the finances and the sports and politics. Nobody can predict the future like we can. But the thing is, when we're wrong now, they've already changed their plans. Now they're mad. So they're, the level of expectations is so much higher that people are that much more sensitive. And we hear it when we're wrong these days. Yeah, Glenn, I've, uh, I echo that exactly. I've often said we're victims of our own success. And yes. I think we're, we're at a point where we're fairly good now that people want, in some cases, they want such precise forecasts that we don't have the skill to do. I mean, they want you to tell them exactly what corner of the yard it's going to rain and what time down to the <laughs> minute. And we, we don't have that level of model resolution or skill, but, you know, the, the field has advanced so much.
talking with Glenn, Glenn Schwartz, Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. And if you didn't know why you call, he's called Hurricane listening to Weather Geeks now, you do. But I want to talk now about your book that came out this past January and it's called The Weathermaker. Give the, the viewers, I'm sorry, the, the readers uh, and the <laughs> listeners and the viewers perhaps uh, an overview of what the book's about. Okay, well, first of all, the general rule is, what people say is, write what you know about. And a couple of things that I know about, I feel experience in are television and in weather, especially severe weather. I've worked at the National Hurricane Center. I was the severe weather specialist for the weather service in Atlanta, by the way, uh, back in the 70s. So severe weather has always fascinated me. It's the reason a lot of us get into business and also the television. So I had written this nonfiction book on the Philadelphia weather, and it was very well received, especially the stories that I had written about behind the scenes in the past. And so it had it occurred to me one night that maybe I should write something with fiction and, and get to a bigger audience, a wider audience. So I originally wrote this 14 years ago. I wrote the first draft for it 14 years ago. Oh, wow. And back then, of course, things were so much different. And I wanted to talk about extreme weather and severe weather and its potential connection to climate change. And of course, back then it was a much more controversial kind of issue. So it was not one of the main focuses of the book. The, the book was about a TV meteorologist who discovers on live TV, basically, that he can control the weather. He can make it rain, stop rain, make it snow, stop snowing. He can't change the basic laws of physics. He can't make it rain unless there are clouds. So he's like a magical cloud seeder on a massive scale. So what I wanted to do was to make a work of fiction that was right about the science. So if you take the premise of somebody able to do that, then what would happen? Imagine what would happen at the TV station if this the weatherman gets on the air this rising star and says on live TV, yeah, I just stopped that storm. And they're going, oh my God, what has he done? What has he gotten into? And then of course they had all kinds of meetings and decide what they're going to do about it. And are they going to say that he's under mental stress and give him some time off? But he insists that he did it. And so then we have to go into him proving it, and then what do you do about it? Now you've proven it, now it's a worldwide story. So I would think that first of all, the insurance business would be interested in somebody who could cut down the damage from a hurricane or tornado or a flood. So they get involved. I would think that organized crime might be interested so maybe he can make it rain and fix a football game or a baseball game. 
I would think that you might have a, a glamorous Hollywood star who wants to get the weather maker to come over to Africa and help with her cause of helping to relieve a drought. And so then he gets pulled from all sorts of different directions, number one. And number two is that other things start happening. So he weakens a hurricane in the Atlantic, and then all of a sudden things get even more active in the Pacific. Well, is there any connection? And even if there isn't, you know there are gonna be people who suspect that with all the conspiracy theories that you hear. Just think, imagine that something like that had happened. So I get into the ethics and morality of trying to change the weather, control the weather, and try to make the parallel to today's world and in the future. What happens when we get to the point and we're not making a whole lot of progress in getting rid of the carbon dioxide and reducing the fossil fuels, not enough to prevent some really damaging warming taking place here and the consequences of it. What happens when we get 30 years from now and we get desperate and people decide, oh, well, we gotta do something. Let's go throw some mirrors up into space and reflect the sunlight or, cover the ocean with an oil spill to, uh, to change the planetary balance. And it's a, like a cautionary tale about trying to manipulate or fix the climate. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm having a fascinating conversation with the legend himself, Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. And he's talking about his book, The Weathermaker. And as we left that last segment, he was talking about really something that was called geoengineering or climate intervention, which is that climate change would get so out of control and, and that mitigation and adaptation was not enough that we have to in intervene uh, with geoengineering, space mirrors or simulated volcanoes or uh, iron or carbon iron in the oceans to stimulate uh, algae and plant growth. Those are called climate intervention or geoengineering strategies. So if you're not familiar with geoengineering or climate intervention, uh, that's something else for your homework. But we also, I think that'd be uh, for the producers that may be listening to this for the podcast, that might be a, an interesting show for us to do as well. Uh, I, I think there'd probably be some, some military and other sort of operations that would be interested in weather control as well, as you mentioned. But your book is sort of genre bending, Glenn. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. been defined as cli-fi. Is that something you came up with, or is, 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 are there other examples of cli-fi out there? Well, it, it actually is a new genre. And uh, there's a guy, uh, Dan Bloom, who coined that term uh, within the last 10 years. And I would say that the day after tomorrow, for example, would be a classic example of cli-fi, that you're making a 
piece of fiction uh, dis discussing something important in science. And the issue to me is that there are loads of great books, nonfiction on climate and extreme weather and future. And the problem is to me is that we're already preaching to the choir. The people who are buying and reading those books already are convinced in general about the science. I wanna to try to reach a wider audience because that's what we need. We need enough public pressure to put on politicians to actually get major things done. There are some big opponents to any kind of significant change in the way we deal with the energy. And we need to do that. And entertainment is a way to try to reach the bigger audience. So I have friends, the relatives, they're, they're not gonna read the great nonfiction books on climate, but they may read an entertaining thriller about that just happens to deal with that. But it also has a lot to do about TV and stories behind the scene and uh, romance and uh, trying to hit any kind of entertaining part to get people in. And the other purpose is to try to get this one day into a big Hollywood movie to reach the biggest audience possible. Look, the last movie that was anything related to climate and fiction was The Day After Tomorrow. That was 15 years ago. Yeah. Oh, I, I completely we need remember. Something. Yeah, I remember that movie quite well. I was actually still at NASA at the time. And uh, there was actually even some controversy about whether NASA scientists like me could comment to the media. On the book. <laughs> uh, there was there was quite a bit of turmoil at that time and the politics of it all. I Ultimately, I ended up giving an interview to uh, USA Today and they asked me to grade it on it. And I, I, I think I gave it like a C minus on the right. science, on the science, but I enjoyed the movie. Uh, but what I appreciate about your book uh, Glenn, is that you are anchored in good science. And I, I think you, you know, sort of mentioned that. And, and I agree with you. We have to, as scientists, and we're both scientists, be mm -hmm. broader in how we convey science information to the public. Because they don't read the scientific literature like I do as a professor and a scientist or, or the latest National Academy reports. I, I appreciate the fact that you are making weather and climate science accessible. Any sequels in the works? Well, yes, it, it partly determines on the success of the book. It was doing just fine until the virus hit and stopped everything. I was doing uh, book signings and having a lot of stuff lined up. And it, of course, it all stopped. So at some point, I hope it uh, goes on and becomes successful enough that there is an interest in a sequel. I have outlines for at least two more to follow. Uh, the titles for it and basic outlines of what is uh, going to happen with the plot. But what happened with the original, again, I, I wrote 14 years ago, is that every time I've rewritten it, I've had to change a lot of the language and make it so much stronger as far as the 
correlation between the climate and extreme weather. So by the time I'm ready to write the next one, things might be a little different. And I'm trying, so I'm trying to wait a little bit until I actually start the writing uh, for the next book. I, I, like I said, I really want this to end up as a movie. And then of course there may be sequels in, in the movie. And there are people in Hollywood, as you know, who are very, very much into climate, climate change and trying to uh, protect the planet and people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo, and there are just dozens of them that follow scientists and read some of the books. And so if anybody's out there who knows anybody in Hollywood or might be interested in something, I, I think I have a really good story with a lot of action. But as you said, I was extremely interested in getting the science right. My my big line is the plot is fiction, the science is real. I had every line gone over by Dr. Jeff Masters. He went over this book line by line to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. Once you accept the premise of being able to control the weather. And shout out to Jeff Masters, a legend in his own right, a founder of the Weather Underground, for many of you that may be familiar with that, uh, recently uh, announced that there's a change in terms of where, what, where he's going to be writing. I know him and my good colleague, Bob Henson, are going to be moving and doing some writing for Yale Climate Communication Group. Uh, as Weather Underground, and I, I believe the Weather Company have uh, made some recent announcements. Uh, so just want to mention that shout out because you had certainly a very able person in Jeff Masters uh, serving as your reviewer on the book. Where do you see Glenn Schwartz in five years? Are you still forecasting the weather in Philadelphia, <laughs> writing, retired, off sipping on a nice drink somewhere in the, in the sunny tropics? No, it, it's really hard to give up on weather once you've got the bug and we mostly get it when we're children and once we do we never lose it so i can't imagine myself ever completely retired um, i did say that what happens with this book is going to determine my future really because i can reach an audience on television and a pretty good sized audience in the fourth biggest TV market country. But I would like to take it to a bigger audience than that. And one of the ways to do it is with this book and maybe a movie as a result of it. So I can have much more of an influence if I go beyond Philadelphia. So if the book is a success, and I'll be able to get more involved in the climate and extreme weather connection and write more articles and books and do public speaking. And I'm, I'm very much interested in all of that. It's always been one of my great interests, being actually in front of people instead of staring into a camera. And there's nobody there that, that you know of. So if things go well, 
I could see myself veering more toward that climate extreme weather specialty. And in the meantime, you know, as long as they want me on TV, I'll stay on TV. I love what I do. I work for a great company. I work with terrific people uh, who supported me over the years. And you know, when you have a job like that, it's hard to give it up, no matter how old you are. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I certainly hope you remain very engaged in our community because you're such an outstanding resource. Now, if there is a producer out there that listens to Weather Geeks podcast or anyone else that just wants to follow you in social media, where can they find you? Well, my uh, Twitter handle is at Hurricane NBC 10. So I do work for NBC. The The book itself is has a website, theweathermakerbook.com. And you can order the book through Amazon or through the publisher itself, um, Sunbury Books in uh, Pennsylvania, which also writes other, publishes other cli-fi books. It is getting to be a subject of a little more interest, but we have to figure out where it goes in the libraries. <laughs> that. That's one of the difficulties is, is where to put it in, um, in the categories in the library or, or on a computer. Um, so, yeah, it's, been, it's been really fascinating just to have this conversation with you, Glenn. I know we've talked via uh, social media and email and so forth. And so we have to end it here, unfortunately. But before I do, I have to do something we do every podcast, and it's the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Todd Holder. Todd is a barber in training down in Florida who loves rainy mornings in bed. He tracks hurricanes the old-fashioned way using a pushpin board chart from the 70s using <laughs> longitude and latitude. Wow, shout out to Todd for uh, the legacy tracking method there. Now that the hurricane season is picking up, your chart may get very busy soon, Todd. Congratulations on being this week's Geek of the Week. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Shepard. And I read what you write, and I'm inspired by that all the time. Well, thank you so much. You know, I'm just coming on the heels of folks like you, so it's an honor eating my stuff. And thank you all for continuing to listen to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.